Isn't this kind of a jump scare? An action film is when the bomb goes off, and a suspense film is when it doesn't. Once I got over my horror of them misappropriating (laughs) the Rottweiler, uh, I don't like directing myself, but we're going to try it. So I think this is episode 10. Okay, episode 10. If I did the math, wait. Hey, this is uh, Max and Jason watch a movie. I'm Matt. Oh, this is episode. Sorry, let's start over. Three, two, one. Sidebar. I don't know if this has happened a lot, but as I was watching it, I was expecting the reporter from Die Hard. Keith Jennings. Ace reporter Keith Jennings, photojournalist extraordinaire. Father Brennan is a bit of a pessimist. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. If it was justified. Hello, this is uh, episode 10 of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Max. And I'm Jason. And tonight we will be talking about The Omen from 1976, directed by Richard Donner, starring Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, David Warner, Billy Whitelaw. Don't forget Harvey Stevens as Damien Thorne. This was the 70s. Children never got prominent (laughs) billing in films. (laughs) They weren't weren't billed. Um, That's right, yeah. Well, I guess I should also mention for those who might be Doctor Who fans that Patrick Trufton, is, who plays Father Brennan, was the second Doctor. Ah, yeah. yeah. I think I can do a brief summary really quickly. This is the story of a, a baby who is uh, adopted by prominent social movers and shakers under duress under sad circumstances the the prominent citizens lose their baby in childbirth and to stop the wife from knowing the ambassador to rome at the time an american politician named robert thorne played quite well by gregory peck is convinced to adopt a baby whose mother has died in the exact same moment as his son died and so he doesn't want his wife to find this out and so he agrees to this impromptu highly illegal adoption i think even for rome Everything's hunky-dory until the kid is about five years old. The thorns are moving and shaking politically like we would expect. But then a suite of mysterious deaths start to surround the baby, whose name is Damien. Everybody probably knows that name. Our ambassador comes to think, because of these deaths and a few other curious circumstances, that his son may just be the Antichrist. Do you think that's a good place to get us going? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, so what do you want to say... Starting us off here, Jason. Jason has been uh, telling me about this movie for years, and I only watched it for the first time uh, last a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, I think. It was you I had first... never seen it. I'd never seen it. I was watching it, and I was like, I've never seen this movie. I thought okay. I had, um, because I'd heard the name Damien. Probably many of you are saying, have I seen this movie? Yeah. I think I have. <laughs> I know Damien. He's an evil child. But Jason had been telling me about it for years, and so I, wanna, I want Jason to take the floor a minute and tell me what he thinks we should know in these opening moments. I've given you the synopsis. Jason... Go. Well, to kind of start with the, you know, kind of the production notes, which actually one of the things that's occurred to me is that is that uh, for those at home that are that have a scorecard, we've now done two Tim Burton films, two Joel Schumacher films, two Richard Lester films, and two Richard Donner films. Donner is now tied in a four-way, five-way yeah, yeah, tie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was Richard Donner's film that he did before Superman. It yep. was his first really major uh, motion picture he had done several films before this, but mainly he directed television episodes. Most importantly, the Twilight Zone episode of, uh, of was it Fear at 10,000 feet or whatever? Did he direct that one? He, he directed that, yeah, with Shatner, with William Shatner. 
sidebar. Richard Donner, it turns out, was in the director's chair for Twilight Zone many times, and he directed one of the most famous and most important episodes of that series called Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. You've all heard references to it. You've all seen seen comedic references to it, I'm sure. It starred William Shatner trying to convince people that there was a gremlin on a plane that he was flying on. So, so wind at the sidebar? And, um, but he directed a lot of television. Uh, the original idea for this film, this won't surprise you, the original idea was de- was developed by a, a man in Hollywood who was a born-again Christian and who came up with this idea for a film about the Antichrist. He had uh, lunch with the man that ended up producing the film, I believe, uh, Harvey Bernard. He started talking about, you know, there's this this kid who and he's being raised by diplomats and, and he's the Antichrist. And the producer, who had no interest in, in religion necessarily, was suddenly like, whoa, this is, a, this is an idea. He immediately went home, started writing, hired a scriptwriter to churn out a screenplay. The screenplay actually didn't, uh, was in some trouble. They, uh, I believe it was at Warner Brothers, I think, originally. And they weren't really into it. You know, I think, I mean, it was an attempt to kind of capitalize on the success of The Exorcist. There okay. was a big, big movement in the 70s to try to create films like this, even though, I mean, uh, Rosemary's Baby came before The Exorcist, which is also a film very similar to this. So the film was kind of kind of in limbo, and they brought Richard Donner on. And Donner read the script in one sitting. He didn't think he would like it, and he ended up really liking it. I I, I was pleased to see uh, that Richard Donner, you know, the the the, the man that we admire, he read the script and he knew exactly what he wanted to take out of it. Apparently, in the original script, there were covens of witches and there were lots of things like that, and he he got rid of those. That decision really created a film that was very focused and focused on the important beats of the story. But but he was very excited about the story. Uh, it was it, it ended up being floated to Alan. Ladd of 20th Century Fox. Um, who, Who's Alan who also, Ladd? Sorry. Alan Ladd was the president of, or maybe the owner of 20th Century Fox. Okay. Um, at this same time, Alan Ladd was making a controversial decision to green light this odd project by a man named George Lucas at Star Wars. Okay, okay. So, so Alan Ladd was a pretty important figure at that time, even. And uh, uh, he was sold on it. So 20th Century Fox picked it up. And uh, uh, listening to Richard Donner being interviewed, um, uh, they got Gregory Peck, which he didn't think he, he would be able to do. And he talked Gregory Peck into doing the film because Gregory Peck said, well, I don't want to do a horror film. Yeah. yeah. And, Richard, and Richard Donner said, this isn't, this isn't a horror film. This is a mystery and suspense film, which Donner, by the way, was, uh, was not lying to him. That is Donner's opinion to this day that he felt like he was making a suspense film. And uh, and then and then he he ended up getting David Warner, who he really admired at the time. And so so just like with Superman, Richard Donner described being like a kid in a candy store. And suddenly, all these actors that he never thought he'd be able to get, Billy Whitelaw and then Lee Remick, he was getting all these people that he really admired, and he was going to be directing them in his first real major um, uh, piece. And, and then they were off and running. Um, it, it, it was... Um, Actually, pretty low budget film. Uh, I don't know if you. Um, I didn't see. I didn't see those values. Two point eight million. Well, I so, know. I, I, mean, know Gregor, I know. I know that helped. That budget was helped by Gregory Peck taking a, a cut, a smaller salary for a cut of the the gross. He he was looking for work as well. Um, and, uh, well, Peck, it, he, this this film turns out to be his highest paid film role ever because he took a percentage of the gross and it did well. Not necessarily a blockbuster, but a pretty pretty major hit. 
respectable uh, for this genre. I think it made like 60 million. 60 million. Uh, and uh, that's respectable for this period. And, you know, it's a, for a horror film that's R-rated, so you're getting like a, a smaller audience. Sidebar. I have to amend our comment that this was just a moderate hit. 60 million is actually quite a lot in 1976 dollars. If you adjusted for inflation, that would have been a $272 million movie. So this was actually probably something like a blockbuster in 1976. So into the sidebar. Uh, Jason and I have this rule about horror films. We, we, well, we think it's a statistical truth that one in 10 of them are good. There were a lot of technical problems in making it, but I think a lot of Richard Donner's, um, a lot of the things that he would become known for uh, as a director of actors and in solving technical problems, there was a lot of that in this film. And he, he relished making it. And he did say, or he does say that this film, I mean, you know, he, he said that Superman was his, you know, he acknowledges today, I think that Superman was his masterpiece, but that the omen gave him his life. Okay. Because without the omen, he would not have made Superman. Uh, the Omen was his breakout film. Absolutely, no. Uh, and it's, I mean, you can see why when you watch the movie. Uh, even even if you're watching it with modern eyes, it's still quite an effective thriller. It's got the good acting. It's got the very uh, organic dialogue. But you, you see even Gregory Peck, kind of an old school, I read my line, you read your line kind of actor, getting in on that with his uh, co-star, Lee Rimmick. Sometimes I find Gregory Peck sometimes so much larger than life. It's hard for me to take him seriously as a character. I always think, well, that's Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck is the hero of this movie. I always forget what character he plays. In this one, I didn't do that. He's not somebody who can play underneath people so much. He's, he's a big actor. He's like John yeah, he is. I, I think, you know. And part of it's that voice. He works wonderfully in this. Yeah, yeah. I... I don't, I don't know if I want to say this, but uh, because I, I, I mean, I'm a big, as you know, I'm a huge fan of the Guns of Navarone. And, and I like Gregory Peck and a lot of other, I, I've seen him in a lot of things. Yeah. And I, I've liked him in all of them. You, you run into people all the time. And when Gregory Peck comes up, well, it's Atticus Finch. Yeah. You know, I mean, who's going to argue with Atticus Finch? To me, he's Robert Thorne. That's who you uh, think of when you see him? Yeah, well, um, but but I guess that's where, you know, we kind of come to that part where, which you've already actually said, but kind of surprised me that you've never seen it. Uh, for me, this was a film that I was aware of as a child because my grandmother, who kind of was a, a watcher of horror movies, actually, my love of film I got from my grandmother. That's because because she would watch films and then they would come on TV and she would say, oh, this is a good one. Or, you know, this one's a bunch of nothing. This is nothing. And I and I uh, remember she hated Omen 2. Okay. That, yeah, she hated it. And she had, she had good taste. I mean, she liked the Hammer films and so forth. But if they were crap, she would say so. And uh, so I was aware of the film. And it was actually in high school when I was wanting to kind of watch other films. And I would go to, I don't think, I don't know if it was Blockbuster. It might have been Hollywood Video. And I rented The Omen um, when I was in high school and watched it. And really liked it. And even because even at that time, I was looking for, because, you know, as you said, like you and I love a good horror film. Um, I think that we're both in agreement that they're hard to find, to find one that's really good. Not just a, not just a manipulative one no. that, that will give you some thrills, but will actually have a good story and emotional involvement and all this kind of thing. And I felt like at the time that The Omen kind of gave me that. And I've watched it a handful of times over the years since. I, I mean, I've I probably watched it less than 10 times, more than five, less than 10 yeah. uh, over the last 25 years. You know, so I, I liked it very, very much the first time that I saw it. Uh, I saw Omen 2. Mm -hmm. and I discovered my grandmother was right. Yeah. 
that was my initial reaction to the omen. Uh, I loved it. Rewatching it this time was um, was really a lot of fun. Jason and I have this discussion about horror films a lot, and one of the ways in which they fail is by being what he just called uh, manipulative, and that means a lot of jump scares that will will, will make everybody like kind of go oh, and they'll scream in the theater, and that's always fun. But often when you think about the scene that caused you to jump up and scream, it doesn't make sense in, in time and space, you know, because it, it's, a, it's a scare that's based on the pan of the camera. Like if the person who, who is also scared, the character in the film is also scared with you, if they had just looked over, you, they would have not, if they just used the peripheral vision, they would have been, oh, there's something in the room with me. I think jump scares are one of the more manipulative tactics that happen in horror films. They can work very well. Alien has a great jump scare this film doesn't have a single jump scare i don't think does it nothing that i think qualifies as a as a as a jump scare it's a very tense film and i want to use the word you use because it because because donner structures it like a suspense film well and, and here's where you know i would say you know uh and i cannot do alfred hitchcock the way uh uh, Peter Bogdanovich does him. You know, you have a room and you have a table, you have a bomb under the table. An action film is when the bomb goes off and a suspense film is when it doesn't. And uh, and I think that The Omen goes for suspense. Yeah, I mean, it has some big scare moments. I think the film starts out tense and it and it grows the horror over the course of the film. And it pays out the sense of dread as the film progresses until the crescendo of the movie. Uh, well, I would add to that. The film, of course... The first scene in the film, as you pointed out, uh, takes place in Rome, is, which actually is probably the only choppy editing of the film is the, the, the opening scene when we discover that, uh, that the child has died. And, um, which we uh, get in voiceover as Thorne is, is being yeah. rushed to the hospital. The, the child has that's, died. Yeah. That's actually the only editing in the film that I wasn't quite sold on. For the most part, and we'll continue to talk about this, I think the editing in the film is amazing. I... I, I I didn't really mind the editing in the opening bit. Did you notice in the opening bit as Thorne is being taken to the hospital, we get Rome, 6 a.m., 6 of what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah October? Yeah. yeah. Which, is, uh, um, which is when um, the film was released on June 6, 6, 6, yeah, 1966. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sidebar. This 666 business is pretty trite and overused now, but it wouldn't have been in... 70 in the 70s when this film was made so this was kind of a first time out for the mark of the beast which was the rage in a lot of 70s apocalyptic literature so into the sidebar and um so yeah see i caught that and i think that in that opening scene peck plays the role in a very sympathetic way we hear that she always wanted to have her own yeah because 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 as he's he's talking to the priest he said well you could the priest says to him well you guys could adopt and and he says well she always wanted to have her own and then the priest just talks him into this you know it's an act of mercy or whatever god God on this day god has given you a son a gift yeah 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 and we understand why that he's chosen to to make this choice because because the film does do a very good job of portraying that he really cares for her. Yeah. That, uh, you know, that they they built this life together, being a diplomat in Rome. And then, of course, he then is going to be assigned to the court of St. James in, in England. And so he, you know, he's climbing the ladder. But, but but he's very affectionate with her. And he wants to give her what, what she wants. Well, he's we worried. Never... He says to the priest before the offer of adopting this kid, he says, well, this is going to kill her. Yeah. He's, okay. he's very worried about her. Yeah. This is going to kill her, that the baby's died. Uh, this also yeah. kind of reflects... We'll get a couple of moments of this. This definitely reflects a different era 
because Peck sort of unilaterally makes this decision without any input from her. He's like, well, I don't want her to, it's not spelled out. But she doesn't know that the baby is adopted. Right. But he but just makes this decision. And he makes another one later on without but, her. Uh, yes. But at, the, but at the same time, he's also manipulated into it as well. Oh, true. Now, true. I mean, now, now he, he, is, he, is, he is soft soil for that. But they definitely, God has given you a son. I mean, there's yeah. this whole thing that, well, this is, you know, this is just meant to be. And, and even though we, I don't think we get the sense that he's a particularly religious guy. Oh, no. Uh, In fact, I'll I'll make the case later on that neither he nor his wife are. Yeah. I mean, because actually, even the time they go to church, they're going to a wedding. In that moment, it was very easy for him to be talked into that. Um, And we understand why he was talking. Oh, yeah. It's not a malicious thing. Yeah, and and then the film takes takes its time to get to know to get to know the thorns, to watch them raise Damien. They have, you know, the, the, the montage of the still photographs of them smiling. It's a you very know, effective little montage to show them how happy they are. We see the kid growing up. No hint, really, that there's anything wrong. Though, I tell you what, I was looking really closely the second time I was watching it yesterday. We get this series of photos, snapshots of their life from Rome to present day Britain, where Damien's five. I looked at a couple of the photographs. I, I paused the film to see, because there's a scene where a double-decker bus is passing by them, and there's their reflections are also in the bus windows. I wanted to see if Donner had done anything tricksy by putting some kind of signal to what was coming in the in the bus windows. I didn't see anything, but I thought that would have been a neat little touch. But Funny that you bring that up, though, because actually something that I had never noticed about this film, but I noticed, in fact, my, um, my daughter watched the first half of it with me. And, How old is your uh, daughter, by the way? I'm going to expose Jason's bad parenting here if she's, <laughs> if she's like six or something like that. Or she's we were 10. watching Aliens the other day. <laughs> <laughs> She watched. She watched just the first couple scenes and then she left. But, yep. but she pointed out uh, some things. The reflections in window. There's actually throughout the film, beginning beginning with the priest and the nun, which is not necessary, by the way. There's yeah. no reason for a reflection for that scene because I believe both the nun, the priest, and Thorn are in the same room. Yeah. And yet you clearly see the reflections in the window. And then on through the film, there are many scenes. It happens a lot. Uh, where there are reflections in the window. And uh, that it, it happens too too often to just be. Well, I, I, I don't know if I would be interested to hear what Donner has to say. I could see it just being an aesthetic thing because it does make for an interesting shot. You could shoot it straight in the frame, mm-hmm. but it is a little more interesting to show, to focus on their reflection. So I, I think I, I think it's a neat idea. It's neat that your daughter caught it. I only noticed the one scene where I was really like uh, thinking about, okay, what's, what's he trying to put in the, in the reflections, you know? And I didn't see anything in any of the other reflections, but I, I, w- I wasn't looking. As closely. Well, but, you know, so I think that um, what Donner was trying to do was he was trying to make this film very uh, psychological. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and suspenseful. Because actually, one of the things that he uses liberally is the close-up. Yep, yep. This film is full of close-ups. But they're not cheap close-ups. Every mm-hmm. time there's a close-up, there's a reason for it. It's to is to enhance suspense or to, horror to, or horror yeah. or um, or the transmission of, of instructions 
from the Rottweiler to whomever, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but Thorne is a very likable guy. I mean, even though I, I, I'm, I'm pointing out that there's this uh, definite, it's still a kind of a very, the man makes the decisions period in history. And this, this guy would definitely be of that era more than younger people would have been. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I think it's all character appropriate. Uh, yeah. A younger couple, a couple that would have been our parents' age in the 70s, this is not how the conversation would have gone. Thorne is an older politician. His wife is a bit younger, but yeah. they are both slightly older people when they, when they get their, their blessing, Damien, in their life. So we get this montage, and uh, we see that they're very happy. And the first major sense that things might not be what everybody thought is the, is the first kind of uh, shocking death in the film which this must have been like really shocking for audiences in, is in 1970. Damien has a nanny. Played by? I don't know who this, who's this actress? Holly Palance. Holly Palance. J- Jack, Jack's daughter. Jack Palance. It's like, she looked really familiar to me. And uh, I couldn't, I, I was like, who, who is this woman? Uh, anyway, the nanny uh, is holding Damien and she gets dismissed and uh, she's, she's leaving the scene. Uh, she's not a bad nanny and she doesn't get dismissed for any bad reason. But she has a, a staring contest with a, with a Rottweiler that's just walking around loose. And uh, it's, it's all very well done. She sees this Rottweiler and they look at each other. And you can tell there's something going on because this is that, that use of Donner's close-ups that Jason was just talking about. It's a very kind of close-up of the dog. And it's really, it is really well done. I mean, it does seem like the dog is, has got something to do. And then it closes in on uh, young... Uh, Miss Palance's face. Her face kind of goes from one expression when she first sees the dog to almost yeah. unhinged. Something has happened to her in this staring contest with the dog. And uh, and the next time we see her is when she's saying, Damien! She's on top of a building. Everybody looks and sees she's standing on the, uh, the, uh, the roof of a building. And she says, Damien! I love you, Damien. It's and all for you. It's all. This is all for you. And everybody's like, what's this about? This is a little weird. They can't see that she's got a noose tied around her neck and she leaps off the building. And this is a great and startling effect even now looking at it. And she jumps. She, she hangs herself and crashes through a window. And it's really horrific, especially since this is at a five-year-old's birthday party. All these kids see it. And it's really horrifying. And uh, it's very neat to see uh, all the reaction shots. It's just a really great scene but that's the first scene of it's not a jump scare it's just horrific it's almost like maybe what we might even call something like gothic terror you you're you're more familiar with that tradition than i am yeah i mean i mean it's just it's very disturbing disturbing and i think that uh for any human being to watch something like that and especially as you said at the birthday party when everyone's everyone's happy everyone's having a good time no one's expecting anything bad to happen in this moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they're having a fun day and all this kind of thing. And then suddenly this moment happens and horror just kind of bursts into their life. And uh, to watch other people experience that is something that is not really fun to watch, I don't think. No, I, no, no. I find that to be a very effective scene. Oh, I think, I think it is. It stands up. There is one other moment. Robert Thorne and his wife, uh, what's his wife's name? Catherine Thorne are walking with their son. He's telling her about their friends who, 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 who have just, who's just become president of the United States. Yeah. Um, uh, Thorne himself seems to be having that same ambition of power. Um, he, well, she he, says that. Yeah, she, she says, says, yeah. You're the future president of the United States. So he's a very powerful man, uh, very well regarded, it seems. Uh, uh, and this is hinted at more than ever said because he gets an ambassadorship to Great Britain 
which is a pretty prestigious position, you know, even today. Right. Uh, but they're walking with their son and then they, they're talking about Damien and then they turn around and he's gone. They're standing by a stream and they're like, Damien, Damien. And like, if you're a parent, you've had this experience. Where's my kid? Now by itself, that's a very normal experience. And they find him and he's fine. He was kind of hiding from them behind a tree and he's just a kid having fun. So it seems. <laughs> um, uh, but the parents are very worried about him. And, and that could be seen in the aggregate of all of the other behaviors that we'll see from him as part of kind of this evil nature or maybe not well it's, it's the beginning it's the beginning of the psychological edge that his parents are put on for the reasons that you stated that's a very effective scene they suddenly where's damon he was right behind us they're by and, a stream they're by a pretty fast moving stream and, and the camera in that moment shows the waterfall oh yeah, and yeah. how yeah as you said it's very fast moving the score picks up for just a few seconds mm -hmm, mm -hmm. until they find him. And so as we, the viewer, we are suddenly on edge and then, and then we're allowed yeah. to relax. So, so the film just kind of feeds out the, 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 the suspense yeah. to us just a little bit at a time. Absolutely. It's really, it's magnificent. And the way probably, that's done. This is probably a good moment to bring up the Jerry Goldsmith score. Yeah. Because, Jerry Goldsmith is going to help guide the viewer through the emotions we're supposed to be feeling. Now, yeah. I, and I don't know if this is just me, I find the score to be kind of uneven. I like the, I like the score overall, but there's moments where I think it's very effective where we see, t we get tension, but then there are the moments where we're supposed to get like this almost bucolic sense of peace and, and it just seems so over the top and saccharine in those you mean, moments. That, uh, you mean the love theme? The love theme. Yeah. Uh, when, uh, before anything bad happens, you know, uh, we get this, uh, to me, it felt just too over the top. And, and that might have been intentional because I found the rest of the score, the tension building, the horror themes uh, to be really effective. And, but, but that, that, that love theme kind of just jarred me every time it happened. But otherwise, I, I thought the score was really effective. Well, one of the things I, I think that sometimes happens is there's this phenomenon of overscoring, especially in horror movies. Some of the best of them have this like really understated score that is like a highlighter instead of just like constantly scoring our emotions throughout a picture. It's, we get these beats. Silence of the Lambs does this. This film does this really well. Uh, so I think that it's really effective. Now, I found it uneven. The Academy of Motion Pictures did not. That's something that I didn't know. What Max is talking about there to, to listeners, this score was, and this is astounding, Jerry yeah. Goldsmith's only Oscar for best score. He stayed home that night too. He'd been because, burned too many times. <laughs> because, and actually, and I didn't, right. He stayed home. Because um, Bernard Herrmann had just died, and Bernard Herrmann scored Taxi Driver, mm -hmm. uh, which, is a, which is a good score. But actually, I'm kind of flabbergasted, because when I think of 1976, what's the best score of 1976? Bill Conti, Rocky. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, in terms of an iconic score that will last forever, that, that is it. Yeah. That yeah. is it. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm very surprised that Rocky didn't win. I always, I just kind of always assumed that it did. Jerry Goldsmith probably assumed he was going to win. Yeah, well, but um, he'd been nominated before, I guess, and he just felt like he wasn't going to get it. So Jerry Goldsmith was nominated a lot, and actually, that's one of the things this time that I have learned. Um, I'll, I'll comment in a second about my perspective on the score because I do see what you're saying, but actually, 
this film uh, inspired me to do a, a bit of a dive on Goldsmith's work. Okay, yeah. And to just kind of look at all the films that he's done and the scores that he's done that I just absolutely adore. He's kind of the unsung John Williams. He doesn't get the credit that Williams gets. But Jerry Goldsmith, there's a lot of great scores that he did, not the least of which is Star Trek The Motion Picture, which yeah, later turned yeah. into The Next Generation. Um, so, I mean, uh, he did Patton. Uh, so he did, he did military scores. He did a lot of, of kind of, you know, almost uh, Stravinsky-esque kind of modern avant-garde kind of scores like Planet of the Apes okay. and, and this one. I, uh, uh, I actually listened to it tonight and I see what you're talking about. It's actually, it's not necessarily the most approachable piece to list, uh, score to listen to when you're not watching the film. The love scenes are full of, um, you know, wind instruments and harp and this kind of thing. So I see what you're saying, that it's over the top. Um, but that's also, that's a bit of, I, 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 would, I would concede that it's dated. It's very 70s. There are a lot of yeah, films. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, you know, an example of that would be like, for example, an, an, another horror film that I like, Carrie. There's a lot of kind of saccharine 70s music in Carrie yeah. that actually uh, work very well because it leads up to the, the, yeah. the rug being pulled out from under you. I, I don't need to get to that uh, too much, but um, I, I think that can work. And the reason I would say that I would concede that it's dated, but that it works is that when I was, when I was listening to it tonight, um, I noticed that as, as the movie progresses, you start with the love themes. Well, actually you start with the kind of Gregorian chant in the credits. Yeah. Then you move to the love theme. Then in the middle of the film, you get the love theme in kind of a different form, only it's more subdued. There's more kind of lower uh, strings that it's almost unrecognizable mm -hmm. leading up to uh, that, the, all the disasters that happen. Yeah. And then, you know, by the time you get to the end of the film, it's just all that fast paced black mask Gregorian chant stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. Kind of mixed in with all of this kind of avant-garde kind of, uh, Music that can be a bit discordant to... Well, yeah, I mean, I don't yeah. mind the discordant, but, and, and I can see, I mean, I'm going to concede right now that it could just be my, my personal taste that jars me a bit for the love theme. But, I mean, one thing that you just said that kind of spoke to me a bit was that it's not an easy score to listen to without the film. And that, I think, goes back to the fact that Goldsmith here... Uh, is really accompanying the film yeah. appropriately. This isn't like, say, John Williams' Star Wars film score, which is meant to be throughout the film uh, to kind of go along with George Lucas's theme that this could almost be a silent movie, right? Yeah. A yeah. silent movie had like a constant score. There was always music. Right. But Goldsmith is like kind of just acting as an accent maker. This is a, an accent note that I want on this scene, right? Yeah. Uh, so these people are in love and this accents that. Uh, this guy is happy, uh, like when Thorne is driving into his home or to the British embassy. I mean, this is a guy who's moving up and this is, this is a happy moment. And, right. and, the, and the, the music, even though it jarred me, I can see it, it is effective even for me who's noticing the score. Yeah, yeah. The, lo the love theme is dated. The rest of it is not. Uh, no, no. The rest of it actually sounds uh, pretty creative. I think. I agree. Um, I agree. Uh, uh, also, you know, you mentioned the, the, the Rottweiler close-up. 
I think that is, is that a synthesizer that maybe he's using that. Meow, meow. Oh, I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is also dated, but I didn't even notice it. You know, yeah. I was like, Oh, uh, once I got over my horror of them misappropriating <laughs> the Rottweiler, uh, it guys pause our movie talk. It is one of the prettiest Rottweilers I've ever seen. And movie trivia note, they had a lot of trouble filming with this Rottweiler. Yeah. Uh, because it liked to play with the cast. And so it couldn't, it, they had trouble with it being mean, which isn't the case with the Rottweilers, I think, in Rome. They had some trouble with those. Uh, they got a little too into their attacking. Yes. Uh, but uh, the Rottweiler that they worked with, with uh, on the set around Damien and uh, uh, Whitelaw, that's her name, right? Billy? Billy Whitelaw, yeah. That dog was as sweet as I thought he looked when they weren't manipulating him unfairly. I like the score. It's, uh, it's pretty effective. But I also want to say that if you're new to this, if you're somebody who's never, you're going to notice that love theme, I think, pretty, pretty well. It's going, it's, to, very, it's going to stand out to you. It's very 70s. <laughs> yeah. Um, not porn movie 70s, but, but 70s. Yeah, uh, yeah. Brady Bunch 70s. <laughs> uh, but I mean, but it's, that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to evoke that, that happy family. Uh, right. What happens yeah. next? Uh, take us to the next, the next, take us to the next highlight you think we need to see here. Uh, well, I mean, uh, then things begin to unravel um, for Kathy Thorne. Uh, yeah. Uh, because there, there are then um, there. It's the, well. I the think scene happens right. Well, first the trip to the church. Oh wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Before any of that happens, we get a new nanny. We get a new nanny who just shows up. Yep. Uh, and oh, uh, hold on, I even want to back up a little bit there because I want to. I want to introduce David Warner. Uh, oh right, because actually after, after the suicide, there's a huge press scrum to try and interview the ambassador to Britain from America. They want to know what happened to the, to the, to the nanny. They know she on drugs. Uh, and they keep pressuring uh, our ambassador. And I think Gregory Peck handles the scene really well because he's, he's moving through this, uh, yeah. this scrum of reporters. And he's very respectful. He's very firm with everybody. But he doesn't seem like a smarmy politician. He seems like a very earnest guy, Peck does, as he's moving through this scene. And uh, he ignores the question at first about the nanny doing drugs, but somebody's, you know, pressuring when they're like, oh, was she on drugs? He's like, not that I'm aware of, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and he moves past them and he actually smashes into this reporter. He doesn't want to talk to the reporters and he does feel bad about how he hastily turns and knocks the reporter's camera out of his hands. And we, we were introduced with him into the, to the other major, one of the other major characters of the piece. And that's David Warner. Um, David Warner, I was going to, tell everybody that you'll know him as the enemy in uh, the first Tron movie, but I realized that wasn't gonna, that wasn't gonna help anybody. What's David Warner been in that people will have seen? Well, he's been in two Star Trek movies. Oh, that's right. He is Chancellor Gorkin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, David Warner, you, you, you guys will know him when you see him. He's a reporter that we think is gonna be kind of a smarmy, sleazy tabloid guy. Uh, and I think he's one of the gems of this movie. I just want to talk, I want to highlight him. He takes some pictures of Thorne and uh, Thorne uh, goes up to his office and he is accosted in his office by an unwanted visitor. And that's the a priest who comes and talks to him unbeknownst to him about the adoption of his baby. And the priest gets let in because that's what politicians would do. They would let a priest in to visit him. Uh, now, I think they would have to jump through a few more hoops. But in the 70s, this seemed really, made a lot of sense to me. Oh, it's donation season. It's 
yeah. glad hand, impress the flesh season. And the guy comes in and he, he wants to convince Robert Thorne that his child is a dangerous child. And uh, he does this by launching into ranting and raving. Accept Christ, Robert Thorne. Drink his blood. Take his flesh. The boy must be killed. And, and so, like, he had, I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta drop this little hint about some of the problems I've started to have with the film upon later viewings. He had one opportunity to, like, get his foot in the door to start talking to Robert Thorne. And instead of, instead of saying something sensible, he launches right into some deep Jesus shit, you know? And he's, uh, he doesn't say, hey, you know, he doesn't do anything that could like lure Robert Thorne into his case. He just drops the he drops the bomb right away. Uh, yes, I you know I I I I think I know where you're going with this. Jason, accept Jesus Christ. Right. Well, the minute that that scene began. Well, first of all, I guess that you know your experience as a viewer because you just summed it up very well. We want him to make the case. Oh yeah. We, we want him to provide the necessary information. It's very annoying that he starts off that way and a little awkward. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 and, and, I and I would agree if that's what you're saying, that, that those moments are rather awkward. But one of the things that I actually like, and I'll, here I'll talk about the sweep of his character, because he blows that first opportunity pretty badly, as you just I said. I should say so. The next time he has a chance, he has a great moment when he catches Thorne and he says, I need to talk to you at such and such park at such and such a time. Your wife is in danger. Just come see me. And if you, and if you don't agree with me, you'll never see me again. And it's like, yeah, there you go. There you go. That's what you should have done the first time. Yep. And then the next time they talk, he goes back and say more shit. Like, so, like yeah. he lost the through line. Your wife but, is in danger. He could have started with, in the second scene where he meets the priest, he could have started with your wife was in danger because X, Y, and Z, but instead he launches into an obscure poem of his own <laughs> making, I think, about, uh, about revelations, right? Yeah. And, uh, and it leads predictably to Robert Thorne saying, now I've heard you, now I want you to hear me. I never want to see you again, right? But I, I've jumped ahead a little bit to the next, the next meeting of the priest, but but so I, but I wanted to introduce those characters because they're kind of, they're kind of important to the, the growing sense of dread. Now, just a quick note, Jason and I are kind of giving this priest a hard time and the movie a hard time for this. I think on the first or second viewings of the film, especially if you're not watching it to critique it, that won't bother you as much because the priest's weird and awkward delivery does add to that discordant, uh, you use the word disturbing, sense that the film wants to give us that, that that Richard Donner wants to give us so it builds into that but I and I'll get into this later I, I think that the film might shoot itself in the foot on the third viewing or the fourth viewing because you're going to start asking questions about well, why didn't they do this you know but 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 I don't what I'm saying is I don't think that that'll jar people in the first or second viewing that priest's behavior well, except, well, actually, except in the way that Donner wants it to yeah well I mean I actually, the way that I now see the priest and his behavior um, is that he's crazy. Oh, yeah. Like, he has actually, he has actually stepped off the precipice that the thorns are are moving toward. And yeah. and that and that David Warner, uh, Keith Jennings is the name of his character. Right? Yeah. Um, and uh, they're all headed that way. And Donner said that to him, this film was about 
normal people suddenly finding reasons in their normal life to doubt their senses and to doubt that, uh, and, and to believe things that they ordinarily would not believe. Well, this priest, he was present at the birth of, of Damien. So he, you know, he, he was he party wasn't to present it. at the birth of Damien. I was present at its birth. He calls it it over and over. Yeah. Again. Uh, right. Right. Uh, he must die, Mr. Tom. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and actually, uh, uh, Patrick, uh, Trotton, yeah, is a bit, he's a bit over the top, actually. Um, it, it it works, but actually, I think that his performance is one of the few that give me pause. I uh, I'll just everybody is great in this movie. Yeah, he gives me a little pause. I uh, for the reasons that we've talked about, I think those scenes are a little awkward, but at the same time, he's an incompetent expositor of the plot <laughs> yes yes but but but, but that's the, but his character's crazy yeah. and that's that's the, that's what thorn it has working against him is that the one guy that has information for him is not capable of providing it because he, he he's he's lost it yeah um he's not so, really capable of making a coherent case anymore well yeah he's the priest is so desperate at this point um that he's kind of resorted to shock tactics and, and anything he thinks he can do to get this, uh, yeah. this uh, Senator or not Senator, sorry, uh, this ambassador to, to grasp the, the terror of his situation uh, fails miserably. Uh, but at the same time, we have this reporter who is constantly lurking about ambassador Thorne and he takes yeah. a few pictures of the priest takes a few pictures of the nanny and he starts, uh, what's the, what's the, what's the reporter's name again? Keith Jennings. Ace reporter, Keith Jennings, uh, photojournalist extraordinaire, uh, has gotten some pictures that are starting to make him feel a little weird about the situation. He takes a picture of the nanny and he notices a weird error, a blemish yeah. in the drawing. And, uh, he takes a few pictures of this priest and there's a, another blemish, uh, like a line, through the draw, uh, through the not drawing the photograph, that he just that keeps popping up in these photographs. On the second meeting with the priest, uh, Robert Thorne walks off. He leaves the park. He doesn't want to see the priest again. And the priest, uh, as he's leaving, uh, I don't ever want to see you again, priest. It's uh, hold on here, I Brennan, think. Father Brennan, Father Brennan. I never want to see you again, Father Brennan. And uh, I'll see you in hell, Mister Thorne. Is what was what the priest says. Father Brennan is a bit of a pessimist. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. It was justified. So, right after Thorne leaves, the park erupts into a a, a terrible storm, and uh, the storm seems to be chasing Father Brennan to a church. Uh, Father Brennan can't get out of the church, and this is one of those close-ups that Jason uh, talks about. Uh, Father Brennan first hops over a. Uh, wrought iron fence with spikes. I thought that was going to come into play, but it doesn't in this scene. Uh, if you ever watch a horror movie and you see a wrought iron fence with spikes, expect something to happen. Uh, but he makes it over that, and he, he's trying to get into the church to avoid the storm that he is sure Satan is sent after him. Father Brennan looks really haggard at this point, and lightning is striking all around, and he backs up because something's happening on top of the church. There's a lightning rod, and he looks at that, and... Uh, lightning hits the rod and it blows the rod off and the rod impales him. And that's the death of Father Brennan. Uh, well, it, I believe it's after that that uh, um, the photographer, the ace reporter, mm -hmm. 
Keith Jennings uh, introduces himself to to Robert Thorne, and I, and I, it's a good time to talk about David Warner and his character. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, um, Keith Jennings is really a I think a great a great journalist character. Yep. Because he he stumbles across this anomaly in his photographs. Yep. Um, he's struck by it, but rather than just be uh, dis- dismissive of it, he takes more pictures. Because remember, yep. he takes two pictures of the priest. He goes out of his way to do it. Father. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again. Thanks again. Yeah. yeah. And he gets the same anomaly. Only and more bold this time. It, only the, more the, bold. The line, is, the line is now Action. touching him. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and then um, he he begins he begins his investigation. Now he does have he does have uh, personal reasons to be doing this, but but actually I I I really like uh, um, that aspect of the character. It actually made me think of Vicki Vale and my criticism of her character. Yeah. That okay, well she's a photographer. Now that's not going to come into play at all from here on out. Whereas this character, his camera is a big part of who he is. Well, not only that, he's a journalist. I mean, he's, yeah. he's out here chasing stories. He's probably trying to sell pictures, but he's also pursuing stories, right? Yeah. And uh, when the priest dies, uh, because the cops think he's crazy, when they have a lot of reason to do it, they just let – they think it's yeah. a freak accident, and they let, they let uh, Ace Reporter uh, Jennings, Jennings. Uh, into, uh, into, the, into the priest's lodgings, which are right across from his church. Uh, they're covered in pages from the Bible. His his whole apartment is covered in pages from the Bible. He's got uh, exactly 47 crosses. I counted them, says Peter Jennings. Um, and they allow him to go through the room and take pictures. And in this in this scene, he ends up taking a picture of himself, which we'll get to in a minute. He he's obviously he's already done some research. Yep. And he he brings Robert Thorne into what he's discovered in a much more effective way than Father well, Brian did. Well, just to interrupt you for a second, I'm sorry to do this, but like, that's exactly right. And Jennings' method is really interesting because he's he's looking at the Father's diary. He's asking Thorne questions. He's got Thorne to come with him. And it's it's very subtle. It's almost Socratic, the way he, he convinces Robert Thorne that trouble's brewing and that his son and that adoption five years ago are at the heart of it. Cause he's like uh, reading from the father's journal. He says, well, five years ago, is there anything interesting that might've happened to you five years ago uh, on the sixth day of the sixth month of the, of the year uh, is at 6 AM. My son was born on that day. And he's like, well, I'm just trying to work it out. You know, he's, he doesn't, he, it's not a high pressure approach that, that, that Jennings uses on him, you know? And then he, he elicits, the truth out of uh, out of Thorn, because Thorn's like my son's dead, and then yeah. and then Thorn kind of gives the backstory uh, about how he adopted a kid, uh, and he's ne- and he's never told anybody that. Never told anybody. So that's a really like in that moment, and that's I, I think that's kind of a moment when we recognize that that Robert is already very disturbed by what's going on, and his wife because, is starting to be disturbed too at this point. Right, right? he's he's worried about her uh, because of the things that have happened. And um, and in this moment, he makes this decision to trust this guy that he just met, basically. Well, and, yeah, we believe that too because Warner is such a good actor in this scene. Yeah, and yeah. and because he's he's flipped the script on us. We are expecting. I don't know if this has happened a lot, but as I was watching it, I was expecting the reporter from Die Hard. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, a, a jerk, right? Yeah, but it yeah. turns out that he's actually a really thoughtful guy and a, and a pretty nice guy. Well, they become friends, I think. I think think so, too, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Warner is very good because he, he conveys uh, a, an attitude that would make somebody like Thorne very wary of him at first, you know, when they bump into each other and uh, Thorne accidentally breaks his camera in, the, in an earlier scene. So, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, gosh, would you send me the bill is what yeah. he says. Yeah. And then Warner, and it seems smarmy and he plays it kind of smarmy. Well, don't worry about that. Let's just say you owe me, right? Is what he says. And you're like, oh, this dude is the guy from Die Hard. He's a dick. We don't, we're not going to like him. But it turns out we do like him a lot because I think he's playing with our, I think Warner and Donner are playing with our expectations a little bit and they, they're going to uh, they're gonna flip it on us and uh, we're going to like the guy. But at the same time, they meet. Warner gives them a, a much better case than the priest did. But also Thorne is, is worrying about his wife because his wife is starting to have these real weird, these weird worries about her son too. After the death of the uh, the nanny, uh, they try and take him to a wedding, and he freaks out just before they get to the church in a pretty good scene. And they have to they have to fly away because the kid won't go into the church. Uh, they've got this weird nanny that just showed up after their first nanny died. Go ahead. Oh, well, by the way, the church scene. Yeah. Um, which I mean, you've described adequately. We don't have to go into any more detail about it, but um, Donner cast this kid rehearsing that scene. Well, it, it, have you, did you hear about this? I did hear about this. I did hear yeah. about this. And I, I, I heard about this a little bit before I watched the movie. And uh, I'll, I'll pause for a moment here to say that this kid could have been a dumpster fire for the movie, but Donner shoots around the kid so well. Yeah. Like he's a five-year-old kid. And I, I don't generally, I don't give, kid actors a hard time. Like I know everybody liked to lay into the kid who played young Anakin Skywalker and Phantom Menace. I don't care. He's a kid actor. I'll look past a lot of stuff. Um, I, I won't criticize the kid actor. I will criticize a director who utilizes uh, too much, who depends too much on a kid actor, right? Mm -hmm. um, Donner shoots around this kid and uses this kid so well that you don't think of him as a kid actor. You think, well, this is a demon kid, right? Or this is a yeah. kid. Um, because the, he doesn't have a lot of lines. When we do see him, he's acting like a kid. So I, I just have no complaints about this. And I, I just, uh, I can't sing enough praises of Donner's uh, somehow making this kid seem really scary without making him act, really. Except yeah. where he, he, gets to, he has to freak out a little bit. And that seems pretty effective. But if you watch closely, before the cut, the kid is kind of smiling. Like... Like he's a kid okay. kind of having a, like you can tell he was trying really hard to be serious, but just at the last moment, he's about to start laughing. But anyway, I, I digress. The kids had a bad experience at the church. And then there was another terrible experience at a horrific, the most horrific location in the film, which is a drive through zoo. <laughs> which like, this is, a, folks, I don't think they have these anymore. It's a zoo. You got in your car and you drove down the roads in the cages. And the, the, the line as they're getting ready to drive out is, please stay in your car in the predator enclosures. And it's like, what is this concept? Anyway, they have a bad experience at the zoo. Damien scares some giraffes. And, uh, and then the baboons attack the car. So you know she's, they... having, she's having a lot of trouble right now. That is... That is an astounding scene. Oh, it's great. Especially, do you know how they had to shoot it? I do, but I'll let you take it away. Okay. This was one of the real technical problems of the film. They had a very difficult time getting these baboons to rush the car. Yeah. They tried many different things. None of it worked. Um, they weren't sure what to do. And then there was a vet who had come to the zoo 
because he had to perform a procedure on the the male baboon who was kind of like the alpha male of the yeah. of the whole of the whole group. He's the one that solved the problem. It's like, well, oh, that's what you got to do. You take him, you put him in the car. They'll go crazy, which they did. And uh, Donner was in the car. Donner Donner was on the camera in the car. But I guess what happened was that the that King Gorilla King Kong woke up and started started pulling Lee Remick's hair. Well, I, I read that she was terrified during the scene yeah and donner was trying to calm her down like no no just just go with it you know um now donner said and i i watched the scene again after you know knowing this donner said if you watch it the camera's shaking because i'm holding it it's not shaking oh really it it is a magnificently shot scene uh magnificently edited very frightening oh yeah The, the shots the shots of the animals showing their jaws getting up on the car are horrific. Well, that is a great scene. It's become a trope in horror films, like the animals reacting badly to yeah. evil. But it's an old idea. I mean, we in in a, a chapter that I think was cut from the original novel Dracula. There's a scene where we we meet a uh, a dog, white dog, that revealed Dracula and it's killed. But but there's this idea that that uh, the natural world recoils from horror. Oh, there's uh, a scene. There's a scene in Nosferatu, the silent film that shows, oh, really? uh, yeah, shows animals kind of coming out, like 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 a lot of silent films. You know, it's just kind of like the scene opens, you see animals come out of the forest, scene closes. But no, that's that's what you're talking about, though. It's yeah. a very old idea. You know, it's very effective, even for being a bit of a, a of a of a horror movie and horror novel trope. Uh, but so she's having doubts. She's starting to think weird thoughts about her son. She even doesn't think that it's her kid at this point. I don't think it's my, she doesn't think it's her child, uh, which uh, Thorne learns upon a visit to, uh, uh, upon a visit to uh, her psychiatrist because she wants him to see uh, the psychiatrist. One of the things that Thorne learns in the park is that his wife's pregnant. He doesn't believe it, but the priest says she's pregnant and the priest doesn't say how he knows it. He finds out though that his wife is pregnant from this doctor and she, she wants to have an abortion because she doesn't want to have another child. Or no, she finds, he finds out from her. She tells him, I'm pregnant. I don't want to have another child. I need you to speak to my doctor. And basically she needs his permission to get an abortion. Um, well, I mean, I mean that's, a, that's a really uh, shocking scene for Thorne. Because oh, yeah. obviously it's when he's, he's putting it all together and it's got to be hard for him because he knows, well, but this is our real kid. Yeah. Go ahead. This go ahead. is a moment where he could come clean. Oh, absolutely. This is a moment where he could say, look, Damien's not ours anyway. Yeah. So, you know, let's go with this. And, um, but he doesn't. I mean, th- th- there, you know, there are moments in the film where Thorne makes decisions that, that uh, are almost admirable. Yeah. Even, even if they're the wrong decision. And then there are moments where, it's like, ah, you could have done that differently. Yeah. You know, th- this was the moment where you could have really moved things in a different direction. Yeah. That is one of those moments and he doesn't do it. Uh, the priest has said that, that his son Damien won't let the baby be born. And he's right. He's right. He's right. Um, but you're right. Had Thorne come clean, maybe, maybe they would have sent the child back to Rome to be paired with family. You know, yeah. somebody might find family, uh, but they would get him out of the house and be <laughs> presumably someone else's problem, you know? Right. And that probably would have brought a lot of peace to their house. Uh, 
uh, while, while, while Thorne and ace journalist uh, Keith Jennings are piecing things together, his wife is at home doing basic house chores. She's, she's changing a, a planter on the second or third floor of their house, and she's standing on a table. And this is a great scene. And so yeah. while, she's, while, she's, while she's getting into a precarious position, <laughs> in the room, the nanny is watching little Damien go frantically around and around in a circle on a tricycle. And we should say a few things about Billy Whitelaw's uh, nanny, Miss Baylock, Miss Baylock. She's watching Damien go round and round in a frantic circle, grinning in a way that should make the audience unnerved. Just as Mrs. Thorne is at her most precarious, the nanny opens the door. And this is is a really great setup because the viewer knows what's gonna happen. We're hoping that it's not going to happen right? The kid is looking right over the handlebars. He's not looking ahead of himself. And he's just pedaling like a little demon, strangely. (laughs) And his mom is on like a a three-legged table so far from the guardrail that she's in great jeopardy. And uh, she's got a goldfish bowl, which by the way, had sardines painted gold. Richard Donner didn't want to kill goldfish for this scene. The kid collides with the table. uh, Mother Mother Thorne goes uh, ass over tea kettle. The goldfish bowl hits first. Very dramatic, slow motion, fish everywhere. But she holds on for a second. And this, this is one of the most effective scenes in the movie where Damien gets off of his tricycle and his mom is holding on to the, to the, to the rails of the balustrade and, uh, and he just looks at her dead-faced. It's a, it's a kind of, I want to go back to your term, disturbing. He's like a kid looking over at something interesting. Her hands start to slip and Miss Thorne starts saying, no, no. No, like somebody who's about to fall and get really badly hurt or die. And it's really effective. I, I thought I, 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 I've got goosebumps out actually now uh, because it's, it's, it's so, hard to watch. It's hard to watch because uh, Lee Remick does such a good job of conveying the horror of anyone in that scene, right? And then she falls to her death and it's kind of slow motion, but more disturbing motion. I oh, guess. not her death. She doesn't die. No, no, she doesn't die. But she, she falls to her uh, pre-death. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's going to get a little banged up here. It's this really neat uh, moment where she rotates, she lands face down. The motion isn't quite right. I think maybe Donner's playing with the idea of, of the fall from her perspective, which would seem very slow. It seemed like it would take forever, the horror of that, right? And he, of course, wants to pay out our horror as the viewer by slowing that down a little bit. And then she hits. Do you know how they did it? I don't know how they did it. The rotation is very weird and, and slow motion. Yeah. But people at the time, like uh, movie people, directors yeah. and so forth, they wanted to know how the hell they did that. What's well, a great scene. Uh, yeah. It's a great um, effect. They built a replica of the floor on the wall. <laughs> and, then nice. they do- and then they dollied her and spun her to the... Wow. So the- yeah. And then Damien runs off and... As the viewer, you could think at his running away, it's almost going like, to get help. It's almost like that. It's almost like a kid who feels bad. You know, yeah. like, oh, I almost hurt mom. He's played so, uh, kind of ambiguously in that scene. I agree. And, and, and that's nice disturbing touch. too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that scene is done perfectly. Um, it's so hard to watch. And actually, you know, um, you know, you said she fell through death and you corrected I, yeah, death. Yeah. yeah, but you know, that's, that is one of the things about this film make it really effective is that it doesn't let you off easy because they could have easily just had her die right there yeah but they kind of allow us okay and she she loses the baby they could allow us to 
to, well, the film does allow us to hope that, well, they're going to be okay. In fact, the doctor even says to Robert that, well, you know, there's lots of things to be happy about. She's alive and you can have other kids. Now we, the viewer know that's bullshit. That's not going to happen. But, but we do think, you know, maybe she'll survive. Maybe, you know, yeah, yeah. I also want to kind of commend that doctor for being a lot better than uh, the psychiatrist because the doctor delivers the, so the doctor says, oh, she's hurt. She's got a broken humerus and she's had some internal bleeding and Thorne's like, uh, internal bleeding. And, uh, but the doctor could have, the, the doctor could have spilled the beans about her being pregnant. But I think the doctor didn't say that because he didn't know if Thorne knew. Right. So unlike the other doctor who's like, you need to give her permission to have an abortion, you know, this doctor's really being a good advocate for the patient, which I kind of like that, that, that touch on the doctor. Yeah. The doctor doesn't have a big role in it. I just thought it was a nice moment. And then Thorne's like, the baby, she's, she's pregnant. And, and the doctor's like, no. She isn't. Yeah. She isn't. And that's when he says, oh, you know, this will be, it's fine. There's a lot to be happy about here. Your wife's okay. She's going to be all right. And yeah. then Thorne goes in and, and like checks on his wife. And that's when she says the thing that really has to push him beyond his low-lying worries at this point when she's like don't let him kill me what honey uh i do a terrible gregory peck everybody so no i, I actually uh, I'm, it's pretty pretty cool but uh, but he again we get to see peck acting like a really caring and good husband and it's at that point though that he starts to really pursue the origin of his son right yep well yeah uh that's when he and his newfound friend ace reporter bestie. Yeah, his new bestie. They they um they go to Rome, uh, which by the way, the location shooting in this movie is great. Oh wait a minute, why is why is David Warner joining him on this journey? Because in the in the in the scene with the in Father Brennan's apartment, he Warner, takes the uh, picture. Keith, Keith Jennings says, "Well, I'll come with you. I'll help you out with this." And uh, Thorne says, "No, this is my problem." And uh, well, no, sir, it's mine too. Yeah. And he explains. Go ahead, Jason. Well, that he he shows that his his picture that he when he was taking a picture of the priest's room, he caught himself in the mirror, and the picture that he developed shows this this black blemish across his neck. Yeah. So so he, and he knows he's he's surmised uh, correctly that this means that he's uh, he's kind of been marked for death as well. Yeah. And the and his only hope is to figure this out. And try to choke it off at the source. Yeah, uh, and and he he is he's totally right about that. Yeah, yeah. And and so at this point, the film becomes kind of this kind uh, this investigative adventure yeah. between these two newfound friends who work very well together. Yeah, yeah. And they go to Rome and they they try to find the hospital where Damien was born, which burned down almost immediately after after the adoption of Damien. Yeah, there, are yeah. no re- there are no records left. The fire um, started in the basement where the records were kept. Ace, right. Ace, Ace reporter finds out uh, and, and he's talking to- And the came, up the, came up the stairwell. Um, now, you know, one of the things that I really liked about that scene was the really weird elevator uh, that, that's constantly moving. It, yeah. It's one of those that, that you kind of, it, it's constantly moving, there's no doors to it. And you just step into it, and it and it and it and it uh, takes you to the next level, um, because just the presence of that elevator was kind of frightening. Because it's like, well, oh wow, is someone going? Is this elevator going to come into play? You yeah. know, is, is Gregory Peck or David Warner going to be decapitated by this elevator? Or yeah. 
Um, so, you know, there's um, those links. So um, they are told where to find the priest that recommended the adoption. adoption. And they find him. He was hurt in the fire. He, he, does, he, he does not speak anymore. And he is, uh, he's been horribly disfigured by the fire. And he's trying, just like Father Brennan, he's trying to atone for his, his choices. And he, he writes, I think, rather illegi- uh, uh, illegibly uh, with chalk, uh, uh, a word um, of an ancient cemetery where they can find the answer to what they're looking for. Um, I, it did occur to me that, okay, you know, how many people can go to a cemetery without any names? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No other information and be like, here it is, June yeah. 6th, you know. Well, it's, we, we've kind of glossed over something. One of the things that, one of the reasons why the, Jennings, the reporter, was interested in the date and the hour and the, the month of, of uh, right. uh, Thorne's son is because there's a strange birthmark on Father Brennan, which is oh, 666. Right. And uh, oh yeah, yeah. And and there's like oh you know the guy because 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 again the police force in uh, Britain is pretty lax and they just give Warner the autopsy report <clears throat> and we find out that he was riddled with cancer. But other than that, the most remarkable thing is a strange birthmark, which is a a, a kind of a swirl of six six six. And uh, I don't know if his other priest has that same birthmark, but. But but that that coincidence, the perfection of the birthmark, the coincidence of his birth and hour and and month uh, numbers, uh, certainly add to the tension and worry that are, are pressing Thorn. Well, you know, it, it's um, that is actually something watching at this time that I'd forgotten that I'd forgotten that Father Brennan had the mark, and it occurred to me, well, why did he have the mark? You know, I the assumption would be that he was a priest who at some point was corrupted by somebody. And, and actually, so, so, you know, for myself, this time my imagination started going and I started wondering, you know, what if um, Father Brennan was actually a, a, a previous attempt by Satan to spawn a son Yeah, that, 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 that failed, but he was still part of everything. And because he was very conflicted in this kind of thing, I mean that would have been interesting, um, yeah. but we don't we don't really know why he has the birthmark. I, I no, I don't. We don't. We, we never get that information. I wonder yeah. if it's not a holdover from the first script with the witches and everything because yeah, I because we don't know because there's some things that we're going to find are never really explained. Right. Uh, when we get to the graveyard, the big mystery, I think. I wonder if it's not a holdover from that script. And let's let's discuss that after we discuss the graveyard scene. So. Which, yeah. well, uh, although I think, I think before we get to that, okay. there's a scene in, uh, in, in an Italian coffee house where they, they kind of put all of the, 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 the revelation stuff together. Okay, yeah. And, um, I, I, okay, and, and I do want to say this. This movie deserves a lot of credit because the plot of this film is very much conspiracy theory-ish, okay? It's very, uh, I'm going to read the book of Revelation and I'm going to make all of these predictions based on these passages. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it borrows from a very fundamentalist uh, reading 
of the book of Revelation. Yeah. And, um, um, and so I think this film keeps that at a certain distance. Yeah. The, the one time they have a conversation where they're in the, the, the coffee house and they're interpreting the really bad poem. Yeah. And, um, and one of the things that actually I was not politically aware enough at the time when I first saw it to that, uh, the reference to the common market, um, the common market is what we today know as the EU. Okay. That's what they're, that's what they're referring to. So there's no doubt that, that in that, in that scene of exposition where, um, Jennings is explaining, uh, what the poem means, you know, how Damien is, you know, entering into the realm of politics and all this kind of thing. Um, but, and they mentioned that, you know, the Jews have come back to Zion, the creation yeah, of yeah, the yeah. state of Israel. You know, you can find all this kind of stuff, you know, in any website that, you know, where people want to uh, write about this kind of stuff. Um, but that's really the only scene where they kind of put that exposition out there yeah. and then they move on yeah. and they move and they move and they move back to the actual conflict of the characters. And that's, I, I, I just think that's something that needs to be mentioned that well, this I, film, yeah. I think it's pretty effective. I mean, I kind of, I look at this film and I kind of put it in the subgenre of horror films that were especially prevalent in the 70s. I mean, this was the zeitgeist of the time. This was the era of, oh uh, gosh, there were so many fundamentalists writing books about the end of days. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the 70s was a, was a huge period for this kind of sentiment, right? Uh, where yeah. People were like, picking apart the uh, the book of revelations and it gave rise maybe uh, to this kind of subgenre of horror film that I kind of consider like the Christian horror film. Right. Yeah. Uh, earlier in 74 or 73, we had the exorcist. 73. Uh, yeah. Uh, but there were other films like this. Uh, Rosemary's films, baby. Yeah. Rosemary's baby in 69. Yeah. And so, and, th and those are just a few. And th this was, this was hardly a, uh, and this was something that a lot of people, this, this idea that you just mentioned, uh, that you could look at the book of Revelations and piece together the future was just in the air in the 70s. And it's, I mean, it's, it, it's dwindled a bit, but it's, I mean, the Left Behind series in the 90s, of course, you know, kind yeah. of builds on that. But this is kind of constant uh, thing that fundamentalists do. But this film does use that gingerly without throwing it in our face. It kind of is like, well, we need the, we need to go through this to move the plot along. Right. But it's a character driven film. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they don't spend a whole lot of time on it. Right. It's like, Oh, well, this is probably what's happening. So we should proceed with that notion. And then they kind of get yeah. on with the, with the, with the business of terrorizing poor, the poor thorns. Right. So what happens next? They, they, uh, uh, uh then the cemetery. Yeah. Um, they go to the cemetery very quickly. Uh, you know, for, uh, uh, in the interest of, of watching a film, yeah. they are able to go directly to the grave that they're looking for. Um, uh, oddly, I, I, I don't know how, how people are buried in Italy. I'm not aware that there was ever a, uh, where you would just dig a hole, put a body in it, <laughs> and yeah. then put a, put a plaque over it. But, uh, but I mean, uh, it's effectively done. It is, they, yeah. They uh, they find the grave of Damien's mother. Yeah, and they they open the grave, and we find the skeleton of an animal. Yeah, 
which is a uh, a, a horrifying discovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and then a, a very um, disturbing next moment. Yeah. When they open the next grave, which is supposed find, to be her son, uh, and it's and it's the thorn son, and yeah. he has a hole a hole in his skull. Yeah. And and Robert realizes that the priest, yeah. the priest, the nun, whoever. That the minute he was born, yeah. they they killed him, and there's just something about that that the thorns. It's this dis- this discovery that he makes, yeah, that he and his wife have been manipulated from minute one, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that this child they never even got a chance to meet was was killed instantly, and so this life that they could have have could have had yeah. was taken from them without their knowledge, and his body was... Although, it did occur to me, well, why did they bury him? Yeah, yeah. You know, why didn't they Why didn't they leave the body in the inferno of the burning of the hospital yeah. and cremate him or whatever? I mean, there was no... I mean, I don't think... Yeah, there was no DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, okay, it's, you know, it's a movie, and it's yeah. a very effective moment. It's actually a very disturbing moment. It's a moment... There are a lot of moments in this film that I think are difficult to watch well, because, yeah. because we like Robert and we yeah. like his wife and we are almost watching this film is like being forced to watch their lives unravel. And we don't really want to see that because yeah. we like them. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that one of the big reasons why the scene is so effective is because we see this little newborn skeleton in the, in the ground, uh, you know, What's I mean, Looks a bit toddlerish, doesn't it? I mean, it's a little big, but but we see the the the, the fractured skull very clearly. But no, it's really horrifying. And the the scene with the the weird animal skeleton in yeah. the mother's grave is also really effective because you're like, well, that's not what a woman should look like, right? Right. Um, right. So alarm bells are now ringing pretty effectively on both Thorn and uh, oh, Ace gosh. reporter Keith Jennings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Keith Jennings, sorry. Um, <laughs> Uh, but they don't have a whole lot of time to process this because at that point they are uh, assailed by another more demon dogs, Rottweilers, right? Who have been watching them the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, they get attacked. And this is pretty horrifying too. I know that I, I, somebody got injured. In, a couple of people got injured during the filming of this. Yeah. Um, they They leave, they hop over a wrought iron fence with the spiky top and it does come back to get them so they're trying to get away from these dogs that have attacked them and uh gregory peck's arm gets impaled on the fence and the dogs are biting through the fence uh it's a pretty harrowing scene uh uh because i'm i the whole time i was thinking my god that would hurt right uh because there's this this big hunk of steel through your bicep and they get him free and then they get back to the hotel and thorn calls his wife at this point right he calls his wife. She's at the hospital. Yeah. And uh, go ahead, take it away. Yeah, and and he he basically he's called one of his friends because he's got connections. Yeah, well, yeah. You need to leave the hospital right now, which she's a little mystified by because she's not in the greatest of shape. She's in yeah. a cast. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but he, you know, you just you need to leave. Yeah, you need to leave and uh, go with. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but you know he's got the connections. Um, he's going to whisk, he's going to have her whisked away to someplace safely safety. You're going to go, you're going to go someplace safe. And we get the sense Robert is taking control of the situation because he's not powerless. Not, no, like no. He has, 
he has a certain he has connections. He has a certain amount of of, uh, of uh, options, things that he can do yep. to make her safe. Uh, and for a brief moment, we think, okay, you know, now he's on board and he's going to make her safe, and and they they can figure out they can figure something out. Yeah. And um, she's mystified by it, but she agrees to it and begins. Uh, um, I believe she's putting on a. Sh- uh, a she's seat packing to go, and she's trying to get some. She's trying to get some outfit on over the weird cast, and that's when the evil nanny comes in. The evil nanny and the and the the satanic mask Gregorian chant starts up. The close ups never a good sign in this movie. The close ups begin. Yep. One of the many tragic moments in the movie occur. She's uh, she sees the she sees uh, Miss Baylock, right? Yeah. And what does she say? I can't remember. I didn't get to that scene in my second watch today. She, 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 she seems a little unnerved. That, I remember she seems unnerved that Baylock's in her room. And then it kind of pans out to the people uh, on the ground floor of the hospital. The, 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 there's an ambulance pulling up, which either is bringing somebody in, or the way I interpret it was, that's going to transport her to wherever she's going to go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so she was that close, you know, to getting away. And she's instead hurled from the hospital building and just falls right into the ambulance which, by the way, Richard Donner would use that again. In the he would. And we, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. And uh, and uh, both scenes are equally violent. Like oh, yeah. she, Because she doesn't just hit the, the roof. She goes through it. We see falls. it. Yeah. Uh, it's a good scene. And she's dead. We see Thorne pick up the phone, and we see him discover what had happened. Now, here's something you might not know. Uh, one of Richard Donner's favorite stories about the making of The Omen is that when they shot that scene, when Donner finds out that Kathy's dead. Not Donner, but Donner no, doesn't um, find out she's dead. No, no, when, when Thorne finds out she's dead. Excuse me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself because it's, it's Donner's story. Yeah. That, um, that what happened was that the scene when Thorne tells uh, Keith Jennings that Kathy's dead. When they were going to shoot it, Gregory Peck went to Richard Donner and said, "Uh, I think that I need to flip out. I I need to throw things. I need to break things. That's what this character would do. Yeah. And Donner said, no, I, I, it's it's not the scene I want to shoot. Yeah. They, and they argued about it. Okay. They argued, they argued about it. Donner was a little intimidated because it's Gregory fucking Peck. Yeah. And uh, finally he said, okay, well, let's, Let's do a, um, let's shoot it. But what we'll do is we'll edit it so that like, so, you know, you will have done your scene where you throw things. And by the time Jennings comes to the apartment, you've calmed down and you're just kind of laying there, you know, in the aftermath. And, and, and we'll do it that way. Peck did not want to shoot that scene. Yeah. He, he did not want to do it. He did it. He shot the scene. And it was only, I think, I think it was in the, in the dailies, like later that day or the next morning when they watched it and Peck said to everybody who was there, everybody, Mr. Donner was right and I was wrong. Oh, wow. It is a great scene because, and the reason I think it's a great scene is because he's laying in the, uh, the, the way that the scene is set up is we're, the camera's right on Peck's face and he's laying in the bed and he's kind of facing the camera and David Warner comes in 
in, in the background. And David Warner's just going about his, you know, he's been out doing his thing and explain, and he's ready to explain to Robert what he's discovered for the day. And uh, Thorne just says, Kathy's dead. I want Damien to die too. Yeah. And there's something about that moment. The reason, I think the reason that scene is great is because everything that he's gone through, there's almost no emotion left. His son's dead. Kathy's dead. He, he, he almost has nothing left. Yeah. And he's laying in this bed, realizing that he wants to kill his son. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's more the way. This is a beaten man. And I feel like that as a viewer at this point, that's how we feel. Oh, yeah. We, we feel very beaten at this point. So the stakes change a lot at this point for the viewer and for Thorne, because up to this point, he's trying to figure out how to save Kathy. Right. Um, save his friend, the reporter, his new friend. Uh, figure out what happened to his son. But now everything, nothing really matters at this yeah. point for him, I don't think. Uh, so, no, it's an effective scene, and Peck plays it brilliantly. I'm surprised that there was any uh, dispute. But so at this point, do they go to Megiddo or have they already been? No, now, now that now they go to, to the Middle East to Megiddo. Quick, quick note: uh, Father Brennan said, "Go to Megiddo, talk to Bugenhagen. Bugenhagen. Uh He'll tell you what to do. The kid's got to be killed a specific way." Uh, and you said they've gone there, or they're about to go? The, the, uh, they go after that. Okay. And because now, now Robert is fully on board. But um, oh, not, not quite, because when, when, when well, they... Well, go ahead, go okay. sorry, sorry. Well, I mean, I, I, I think I know where you're going with that, but, but I actually gave this some thought. So they go to Bugenhagen, and Bugenhagen, almost expecting them, and he pulls out all of these, these, these sacred daggers yeah. that, that for, for some reason, uh, have to be used to kill Damien and he has to be killed on sacred ground. It has to be done on, on an altar, I think, yeah. or in a church. I, I think it's on an altar. Uh, Bugenhagen is played by Leo McKern, who, uh, as a side note, uh, was an actor who appeared in the Beatles help directed by Richard Lester. Okay. I say that as an aside. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, Leo McKern was actually in a lot of films. Uh, he was quite a char- a British character actor. Okay. Um, and uh, he explains all of this to Robert that you need to take Damien to holy ground and kill him yeah. and basically in cold blood. And um, now, see, I, I think Robert is was on board up to that point. But see, this is a moment that I think it's the reason why it's so easy to relate to Robert Thorne. Yeah. And, and here I, I'd like to stop because one of the things in a horror movie that can kick you out of the movie is when the protagonist who you're supposed to relate to and care about does something so stupid (laughs) that you suddenly say, Oh good. I don't have to care about you anymore. Yeah. But that's not what happens here. Robert says something very rational. He wants me to kill Damien. He wants me to murder a child. Yeah, Yeah. And he says, he's not responsible. I won't do it. And we, the viewer, think, well, that's right. Yeah. Damien, I mean, Damien can't even talk. How the hell is he supposed to, like, how are we supposed to believe, how's Robert supposed to believe that Damien can make a rational choice about what he is going on? Yeah. Robert's, Robert's doubts in that moment 
are fully understandable. Now we know they're mistaken. Yeah, yeah. We do. We do know that. But but the reason that he makes that choice makes perfect sense, I think. Well, and he th- and he throws the knives. Well, I don't do it. Yeah, and I, I see. I think it's just—it's a great moment to illustrate something. Oh. It's a mistake that a lot of horror films make. This film does it right. Well, I think it's a great scene. It—it it, it is perfectly in line with the decency that has been exhibited by the character. I mean, we get the sense that Robert Thorne is a decent guy, ambitious, sure, but not bad. Ambitious, right? right. Cares about his wife. Cares about Damien. Uh, and it's not until a few moments later that he realizes that. He's going to have to do it. Right. But, uh, and that is, uh, I think it's a classic scene, an infamous scene. Uh, Very of, famous. Still in Megiddo, right? Uh, uh, or there, yeah, anyway. Uh, set it up. This is your movie. Go ahead. Well, well uh, actually, I uh, just yesterday discovered that the, the script called for, um, oh, well, uh, Keith Jennings, uh, uh, Robert Thorne throws the knives. And uh, he says, I won't do it. And uh, um, Keith Jennings goes over to pick he up says, the knives. Do it, he says, I'll do it. He says, uh, well, if you won't, then I will. Yeah. And, he, and he begins gathering the knives because they, you know, they're all scattered everywhere. And there's like seven of them. Yeah. And uh, there's a fellow. Another great gets- setup scene. Very much like the, the, the first fall of, of Kathy Thorne. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then a guy gets out of a truck. Up a hill. Uh, Keith, uh, Warner, Keith, Keith is at the bottom of the hill. Yeah, and, and, it's, on, and it's on an incline. Right? The guy gets out. He does nudge the parking brake, but not enough. And then it suddenly it pops the rest of the way. So clearly there's something else at play here. Yeah. The truck goes backwards. There's a huge pane of glass in the back, in the bed of the truck. It, it, it slips out of the bed of the truck perfectly uh, in time to decapitate uh, uh, ace reporter Keith James. He's told his uh, last story, taking his last it, photo. Yeah, uh, but uh, it's, so, it's, it's it's a horrific scene because the the truck hits a stopping point and uh, the pane of glass sends his head. His head tumbles over the pane of glass. It's pretty pretty graphic. It look it it looks good. Yeah, oh yeah. It, it, it looks good. Uh, it, I mean, when I first saw the film, I rewound it. Uh, I, I watched it with a group of people, yeah, and, we, yeah. and we and we rewound it about five or six times. And uh, but I think it still looks good. It still does. Um, uh, but there's some uh, um, there are some stories uh, about that scene. the The script called for a pane of glass to fall from a building. Okay. And the special effects guy just couldn't get it to work. Gotcha. And he told Don, or I, I just I I can't get it to work. It, 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 it's not working. And so they came, you know, come up with something else. And so the special effects guy came up with this scene and they shot it. Now, Donner said, and this is Donner aping Hitchcock, the master of suspense manipulating the, the audience. Donner, I, I, I watched him talk about this. He says, when you see a horrific scene in a, in a horror movie, what do people do? They cover their eyes, usually about three seconds. So it's like one, two, three, and then they look up to see what's happening. So the spin of the head, <laughs> there's a pause, and I mean, I mean, I mean, that happened naturally, yeah. but they edited it in such a way that he wanted to make sure that when people, you know, took their hands away from their eyes, that they would still see <laughs> the decapitation. So he totally 
wanted to do that. He wanted to have people check out of the movie thinking that it was safe to check back in, but no, there's the head still spinning. And, um, uh, which by the way, I guess that uh, David Warner refused to be on set for the decapitation. I mean, obviously he shot his scenes, Yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but for the actual decapitation, he would not be there. He would not be on set anytime that his head <laughs> was there. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess that Donner, uh, got a big kick of dri- driving around Rome with, with David Warner's fake head <laughs> hanging from his roof of his car. Now, quick, quick, quick trivia question for you. Um, do you know when, what film did Donner use this gag again? Not sure. I'm not not as graphically, but what film did he do uh, something flying off of a truck and killing somebody in the same basic manner. <clears throat> what film did this happen in? Not sure. The answer you're looking for is, was it Lethal Weapon 2, Max? <laughs> um, because- no, I never made the connection though. Well, I've no, seen that numerous times. It's a surfboard in Lethal Weapon 2 that does the oh, same- Oh, yes. Uh, the same action. Anyway, go on. I just, wow. I, I just thought of that. Yeah, wow. Um, but um, this scene is justly famous. This is a, it's, it's a really good scene. It still looks good. It's still shocking. Um, it was very daring. Oh That's gosh, a, it had to be, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, um, it was kind of cool. When I first saw it, I didn't know the scene existed. It was only after I watched it for the first time that I read that um, when people refer to the omen, they like, well, everyone, Everyone watches it for the decapitation scene. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, so, so, so Jennings is dead, and that's the that's the push that that yeah. that uh, Thorn needs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's then the film is off to the races. Uh, Absolutely. He's he's back in Britain, and uh, I think for we need to pause for a moment before we we go into the film's uh, final act and talk a little bit about Billy Whitelaw. She's mm-hmm. the new nanny who comes in and replaces the, 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 the nanny who killed herself. And uh, she's a bit of a mysterious figure to the thorns. We get the, we get the wink and the nudge pretty early that yeah. she's bad news. I read a funny description of her that she's like the anti Mary Poppins. Yeah. She, she uh, shows up, Unwanted, she does uh, by the parents. She doesn't listen to the parents um, ever, <laughs> ever. No, um, so she, uh, but she's a kind of a magical being. Maybe she seems to know things. She's not quite as. I don't think that she's as powerful as Mary Poppins, magically speaking. But but she's odd, right? But so she she appears and she just insinuates herself into this life, almost on sheer chutzpah, right? Uh, right. Oh yeah, the, the the nanny company replaced the other nanny. Um, uh, several times she just flat out disobeys the thorns. Uh, one of the the Rottweiler, the hypnotizing Rottweiler, shows up in the thorns house and is constantly growling at Thorn. And uh, she seems to get along with the Rottweiler really well. Damien gets along with the Rottweiler really well, but uh, Thorn asks her to get rid of it like twice. Oh, he doesn't ask her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. I mean, I mean, actually, that's one of the things that is very. It's the it's part of the suspense of the film, that uh, um, the dog is in the room, 
the, the nanny, she gives Mrs. Baylock, right? Baylock, yeah. She, she gives a, a pretty good excuse for why the dog's there. Damien loves them. And, and, and won't you feel safe, sir, when you're off and, and we've had this dog to protect the child? So she does a very good job of making the sale. And we, the viewer, are very impressed that Thorne's having none of it. If we're going to have a dog, I'll pick him out. Yeah, yeah. I, want him, I want him gone. And we get this sense that um, Thorne has the backbone to, to uh, win a battle of wills with this, with this lady. And she seems to realize that she can't be too aggressive with him. Yeah. So Thorne never, we realize, but Thorne never realizes that A, she's dangerous, but B, he has, for most of the film, has a certain advantage over her. Yeah. That he, that he never takes advantage of because he never quite believes, he never fully trusts her, but he never makes the leap that she's not really someone that should be there. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, it's, the actress, uh, Billy Whitelaw, is that her yeah. name? Bill, yeah, Billy Whitelaw. Yeah. He... She's great. She's great, and she has to be given a lot of credit because the original script had her originally written as kind of a, a really bubbly, very nice person. She, I think she was always intended to be a bad guy. Um, yeah. But Whitelaw came in and just read in this kind of eerie, intimidating, spooky way, and they were like, okay, we're just changing the character. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And interestingly, like trivia note here, she tried to get out of the movie the day before she was shooting. She didn't want to do the that... movie. Okay. Um, she had gotten a she had gotten a part in a play on, you know, in in the theater uh, of Britain, and she tried to get out of it, but they wouldn't let her out of it, and so she ended up having to wow. do the movie. She she tried to get out of it at the last minute, uh, and uh, which is it's good for the film that she didn't get out of it because she she really she's another actress who elevates the material, um, but she is 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 an important component of this and it wouldn't have worked what happens in the close of the film wouldn't have worked if she had not been so so good yeah. uh, anyway uh so thorn is pushed over to the edge over the edge he's like okay well, i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna have to off damien and uh he goes he goes back to home and take it away again yeah he he comes back home and actually you know i i had forgotten some of the beats of the of the climax yeah and um, for a second, I was wondering if my high school self had, for, you know, had forgiven this movie, you know, despite having a, a non-exciting climax. And I realized that, no, no, I, I was right. Uh, because there are, uh, there are several things that, that Thorne has to overcome. Yeah. He's, got, he's got the dog that is no longer uh, interested in discussion at all. Yeah. And then he's got the sleeping nanny and then he's got Damien. So he locks the dog in the basement. Yeah, he's had um, he's had one bad run in with the Rottweilers, and he does trick yeah. this one pretty well. Yeah, and, and and the dog, of course, recognizes that this is not good. That he's yeah. got to that you know he, he should not have gone down to the basement. Yeah. Um, um, the nanny still uh, he does see that Mrs. Blaylock is sleeping. Yeah, and he shuts the door, which is wonderful because there's no click. Like yeah. he's so careful, and then he sees his son sleeping and he's he's angelic and uh he's uh going to get him out of the uh of the uh, of the house and he's then a, I, isn't this kind of a jump scare um i don't know if it's a, i don't i don't think of it as a jump scare because to me a jump scare is a is a 
is a function of camera work. Yeah. And not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily follow the logic of a room or a, or human action. It's a, a pan. I just think of it like it's a pan and scare. And th this may have some of those elements, but I think it, it works in the, in the because, context well, of the film. His attention is on Damien. Exactly. And, um, and, and she attacks him and th there's, look, you know, it's a very effective sequence yeah. where Robert and Mrs. Blaylock have this kind of fight and in which he finally uh, has to dispatch her. Yeah. I, I actually had forgotten that. It's a good, it's a good scene. It's, it's, it's intense. It's, it's uh, jarring because you know, this, these two are in a serious fight for, to the death. And I mean, Gregory Peck isn't a small man and he's, you know, he's going after this woman. She's going after him too, but the juxtaposition of their, different sizes is kind of in its own way, its own disturbing kind of horror that, that he's going to have to kill this woman, you know? And at this point as a viewer, this is what I was thinking. I was like, there's no way out of this situation for Thorne. And I think that adds to the terror of the situation. Even if he's successful, kills Miss Whitelaw, I'm sorry, uh, Baylock, Baylock yeah. successfully dispatches the son of Satan. No one in the world is going to believe anything he says after this is done. So as, as a viewer, I'm like, how does he survive this? How does he get out of this? That's in the back of my mind. I'm sure it's in the back of a lot of viewers' minds. Go on, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 see, I agree with that. But of course, also though, that's in our mind because we like him. Yeah. But, but, but he's lost everything at this point. And, uh, you know, there should be this kind of almost like uh, uh, this resolve to kill this kid. So he dispatches her. He jumps in his car. It would have served him well to just drive quietly and slowly away from the home. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Because he, he, he drives out like a bat out of hell and it draws the attention of the authorities right away. Yeah. And they think it's going to be a diplomatic incident. And so they know that they have to, uh, they have to do something about it. And, you know, it, it, it's really, there's something very conflicting. Uh, like he's driving. Now we know, we know, that this is what's supposed to happen. Yeah. And we know that he knows that. But then we have the shots of the kid kind of scrunched up against the door of the car and he's holding him down with his hand. Yeah. And, the, and the kid's frightened. And, like, we get it. Like, we feel a certain amount of, well, the kid's scared, you yeah. know? I mean, I mean, we feel the manipulation and the growing doubt that Robert's going to feel. And he's raised this kid. He's posed for a, a montage of photographs That's right. with this child. And, and so, um, but he arrives at, at the church. God, this is so well done. I mean, he just kind of walks, he walks down the aisle of the church. And he's holding the kid in his arm, like, you know, come on. Like, like he, he, he's really, he's very aggressive. He's physical. He's manhandling the kid, which you would in that situation. Yeah. Because in this situation, Thorne knows what's going on. He knows that, that, that uh, the child's not human. And and he, right and so that's what you would do. That's that's the way that you would act. But it still looks shocking. And he goes up to the altar and he gets the knife out. And God, he's just ready to do it. He's pulled his arm back. It's a it's a. What are you doing, Atticus Finch? Yeah, and Daddy, no. And um, which that's effective. Yep. And then, you know, God help me. Yeah. Uh, and then the police come in. Uh, Stop or I'll fire. Yeah. And um, there's the slow motion bullet coming from the gun. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. fade, and then we see a funeral. And we yep. see an American flag being being folded. Um, somebody died. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, very possibly the, the the very possibly both of them. Very possibly both of them, because clearly he was coming down to stab. The bullet might not have gotten there in time, uh, and yeah. so it's very like it's very likely that he's dead. But he probably killed Damien too. And then the flag is given to his best friend, the president. I guess Jerry Ford, uh, and then the camera I'll have kind to of pardon him too. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so then the camera pans down between the president and the first lady, and we see that they're holding the hand of a little child. He turns to the screen, and lo and behold, it is Damien. With, and... the, with the with the classic Damien stare. I mean, that is an iconic horror image. Um, but aren't there two graves? At the at the gravesite, I think they bury. I think there are two graves. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I guess Kathy. Yeah. Now, but, but, but before okay. we get to the kid, they're playing with our expectations. I mean, as the as the viewer, what we are hoping is that the best case scenario is that Damien is dead and Thorne has been arrested. That's the we're rooting for the death of a five year old in this movie, right? And <laughs> and one of the things before you go on. I think one of the things that's so amazing about why that scene is so horrific, I, I mentioned, what are you doing, Atticus Finch? Gregory Peck has made a career of being a pretty wholesome guy. I mean, this would be right. like this would be like Tom Hanks getting ready to kill a child on, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, in a film. Donner really wisely uses that film history of Peck to the highest effect in this movie. But... Anyway, go on. So I, I interrupted you. Sorry. Well, no, but I mean, actually, I, to, to kind of go off of that, I think that's one of the things. Gregory Peck, I mean, there's so many great things about this movie, but Gregory Peck is one of the great things because that's one of the, his presence is what makes this movie horrific. Yeah. Because, well, it's Gregory Peck. This movie can't do anything to me that I don't expect. And yet it does. And so I think that the casting of Gregory Peck, amazing idea. Like, oh, it's great. It, it sort of is like uh, the casting of Peter Fonda in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Is Henry. That, Henry. Uh, Henry Fonda. Henry. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Um, where, where Henry Fonda is played as a, as a really gruesome individual, right? Yeah. And Henry Fonda had a kind of similar <clears throat> character trajectory in, in Hollywood as Peck, as these kind of upstanding yeah. figures um, that, that, you know, almost always playing the nice guy. Right. Right. And uh, when you see him in a role against type, now they don't play Peck against type, but they use that type. To manipulate us. Yeah. Um, so the original ending of the film did have three graves. Oh, okay. Yeah. And apparently what happened was uh, Alan Ladd, who was the head of 20th Century Fox, he saw the rough cut, loved it, was really, really excited about the film. I, I think he had lunch with Donner. He's like, oh, I, love, I really loved it. But you ever think... Can you have the kid live? And Donner was like, "Wow, that's we have to do that." And so um, he said, "Can I have ten thousand dollars to do reshoots?" Yeah. So that the, the the scene at the graveyard was actually shot after filming had wrapped. They, they did that later, and uh, well, at, at least the shot of Damien. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not the funeral itself. Yeah. yeah. But at least the shot of Damien and Donner described that he 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 had uh, the kid whose name you stated and I can't remember his name. The actor he 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 had him do the turn and to stay to do the stare that you were talking about. And Donner wanted him to smile. Okay. So and you're I think you'll appreciate this is very Donner and the way that he works with actors. Don't no don't laugh don't laugh like and so that's how he got the grin. 
Okay, okay. Because it's, it's a genuine grin. It's a very, isn't it? There's yeah. nothing fake about it. It's almost, it's almost a giggle that angers us. Yeah. Because it's, it's a giggle of victory. And we, the, and we, the viewer, we have gone all the way through this movie and we saw the people that we cared about die and they did not achieve their objective at all. Evil wins. Yeah. This happens occasionally in horror films, but I don't know how often it happened in, sev- in the 70s. One of the things that's upsetting about this, I think, for us as the viewer is that they get so close to, to, to achieving the goal of defeating the great evil and and they don't they don't quite get there we at least wanted to see gregory peck right off into the sunset like shane right right in this case probably carried off in handcuffs to a british jail but <laughs> but we at least wanted to see him achieve some measure of recompense for the horror that he's had to endure but it doesn't happen and it's it's a harrowing ending uh, uh, uh it's a bit reminiscent uh, i think planet of the apes the original started this trend of having these unnerving endings okay and uh th- this one's particularly effective uh planet of the apes everyone i mean even people that have not seen the film know the ending it's just yeah. one of those things that everyone knows. I think someone could watch this film and not really be expecting the ending. I didn't expect it. Okay. I, I, I didn't. I, I hope Lord Movies doesn't strike me down for making this uh, uh, admission here. But I didn't know there were a bunch of other Omen films. Anyway, so that's the end of the film. Uh, reflections. Yeah. Let's hear some reflections on this on this viewing. I really, I, I've always liked this film ever since I, I first saw it. Um, my my admiration for it has not changed. Uh, it, it, it's still it's still very high. Um, it, it, it's look well. One of the things that I didn't know is that actually reviews were kind of mixed. Yeah, I was reading that too. Which was really surprising. Roger Ebert didn't even like it, and um, and um, in fact, you mentioned that. Critics love the score. And I and I read that, that there was a lot of reviews at the time that said, except for the score, no. this is a bit, you know, this is kind of a, I, I think people thought of it as an exorcist ripoff. Well, there was, there was that, there was a lot of backhanded compliments to the film, you know, um, yeah. this is a silly film, but it's well acted, well scored. And, you yeah. know, basically people were, a lot of people were like, check your brain at the door, enjoy the popcorn and have a fun ride is what they yeah. said is what some of the yeah. more serious critics of the time said. Um, go on. Well, it, it's really interesting. Um, the film was redone in 2006. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I took the liberty to go to the Wikipedia and read the plot outline for the 2006 film. And the plot outline is exactly the same. Yeah. When I, when I mean exactly, I mean there is nothing different. It, it, I think the remake, which I now don't have to watch, is <laughs> basically very similar to was it Gus Van Zandt that did the shot by shot remake of Psycho. Yep. I think that that's what they did, and I'm mystified by that. Yeah. Why does this film need to be remade? Yeah. I don't. I don't understand that. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, you're quite right. Let's hear that again, shall we? You're quite right. Tom Hanks would actually be the kind of guy that you would want for this role. That's not who they chose. Yeah. Um, but Gregory Peck. Like you can't recreate Gregory Peck. No. I think that he's he's uh, look, look the cast is great in this movie. It's an extraordinarily well directed movie. Uh, Stuart Baird uh, edited this film. Stuart Baird also uh, edited Superman. Okay. And then uh, later would uh, he's retired now I think, but he edited uh, Skyfall, Casino Royale for the Bond films. Wow. And he even directed a little bit. He directed uh, Star Trek uh, Nemesis. Okay. Which I didn't know. Yeah. 
So uh, Stuart Baird is really a Hall of Fame editor. He he did a great job editing this. Look, this film's well edited. Gilbert Taylor was the cinematographer. Well, he 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 had shot um, Doctor Strangelove and A Hard Day's Night. And A Hard Day's Night, especially, is is uh, uh, in terms of cinematography, is considered very innovative. And then I guess that he had kind of he was working on a farm. Like he had retired and he came out of retirement to do the Omen. And, and it was. Didn't he do the editing on Star Wars A New Hope as well? No, he did the, uh, he did the cinematography. Oh, the cinematography. Okay, sorry. Yeah. yeah. But, but the reason that he did is that Donner did the Omen. Remember, George Lucas was not necessarily the household name, right? He was making, he was getting ready to make Star Wars. So uh, the Omen was in the can. Uh, Donner was young. Donner was one of those young directors and they all talked and stuff. And uh, Donner recommended that uh, Lucas use Gilbert Taylor to shoot Star Wars. Okay. And so he shot The Omen and Star Wars back to back and then basically just restarted his career. He, he then became a cinematographer again. Okay, okay. Well, he's great. I mean, he's, uh, I don't have any complaints. I don't actually have any real complaints about the movie, though we're on our reflections now, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the first time I watched it, which was just a couple weeks ago, I was carried along effortlessly by the film. Didn't didn't quite notice some things I noticed on the second viewing. Right. The ineptitude of the priest, for instance. <laughs> Once you start asking questions about this movie, it can damage the drama of it. And then you start kind of nitpicking, which I started to do. I kind of think of this film a lot like The Sixth Sense in that the acting is great. The uh, cinema, everything is great about the film, but there are some problems that are lurking just below the surface because it's, it is exactly right that the critics were like, this is kind of a silly movie. For instance, here's a question I asked. If you're Damien, you're the son of Satan, you're the Antichrist, Right. And you need to get near power. Five years old isn't a great time to start having people mysteriously die all around you, right? <laughs> right? Maybe you wait until you're 18 or 19 when you're about to come into your inheritance. Maybe you wait until you're 20 or 30. You've, been, you, you've kind of been buoyed by your father's success, your mother's success. Maybe you can do evil things on the DL. That's down low for our older listeners. You're quite right. But maybe you do that then. Instead of starting to be spooky when you are fairly defenseless and need an anti-Mary Poppins to defend you, right? So those are the kind of things I started asking myself about the film. After the first viewing of The Omen, I kind of started to think, ah, well, you know, this is, this is starting to strain my, my ability to check my brain at the door. So that, that's kind of where I started to, that's where the film started to break for me a little bit. It, well, see, I would agree. It's not as good as The Exorcist. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not. I, I would also, and, and I hinted at this a little bit when I talked about the, the, the cafe scene. Yeah. When they start doing the exposition, like, ugh, this is kind of the stuff that doesn't really make a lot of sense. The, but it's smartly done. I think smart viewers are going to have these problems with the film. I think that it's a problem, but I think it's a small problem because, you know, uh, Gremlins is a silly movie. <laughs> The Goonies is kind of a silly movie, but the film carries you through its rough spots well enough that if you want to see a good horror movie, I think that this is going to be one that will satisfy. I mean, it'll even be fun to revisit. I, but, uh, see, I, I agree with that. I noticed those things, and I probably noticed those things even before. But I think that in the horror genre, it, it does far more things right than the vast majority of horror films. Well, and, and I appreciate that. I agree, I agree. I just, like I said, I just think that there's a, 
inherent weakness in the script that you don't notice on the first, maybe not even on the second viewing. We're watching this film, I'm watching this film critically for this podcast, right? I probably wouldn't have noticed this stuff as early as I did if I wasn't watching so critically because even though the film's kind of shallow, I think, in, in, in that treatment of the of the horror, I don't think that's a big problem, honestly. I mean, that's that's a problem inherent in almost all horror movie scripts, you know, when you when you get down to brass tacks. Well, well um, Donner said, and I think, I, I think this was in the, uh, the director's commentary, that I listened to last night in, in his conversation with Stuart Baird, uh, they both agreed that this film is about characters and it's specifically about Robert and Kathy and kind of basically the loss of their lives. And the all of the Book of Revelation and all that stuff, that's a backdrop. I almost feel like that what Donner chose to do and what makes this film successful is that he... He makes this this movie a a a, a, a the un, a love story that unravels, and the backdrop just happens to be this rather outlandish story that involves the Antichrist and the Book of Revelation. And I think that was a smart move. And now, and now, and now the verdict. I would recommend this film very strongly, especially for people who love the horror genre. I think that for anyone who wants to see a really well-made horror film with great characters that is emotionally involving, uh, that is suspenseful and has uh, just just great storytelling beats from start to finish. This would be in your top 10. I think I, I would agree. It sounded earlier like I had uh, some serious reservations about the film. Or My complaints are actually really minor. I agree with everything Jason said, especially if you're a horror fan. Uh, sit down, turn out the lights, put your cell phones away, and watch The Omen. Yeah. Jason, do you have any idea what we're going to do next? Uh, well, we've talked about uh, doing other horror films. You know, what comes to mind right now would be The Thing. I like that idea. Um, all right, guys. So this has been episode... Ten. Ten. And uh, next week, we're going to tackle The Thing uh, by John Carpenter. We're going to do that one, right? Or we're going to do the Howard Hall? No, no. We're going we're to do the Carpenter film. I, I, I'll tell you right now. If I... If I'm able to, I'm going to watch the original as well. And we'll see you guys next week. Absolutely. Bye-bye. And cut! And then I was kind of annoyed that God was just so hands-off. Oh, God. I think, uh... I think we should add this so I don't have to add this in, in, in post. You're quite right.